visiting with us this morning. Let me introduce myself. My name is Greg, and I serve here as the lead pastor. I have since 2010, and it's my pleasure to open the word for you today. Um, as Joe mentioned, we are having a special speaker next week. Um, his name is Rick, and uh, Rick Atkinson, and he serves with Acorn Ministries, and he'll be visiting with us in both Sunday school and in worship, and we'll be staying for Upreach next Sunday night. And so I would, looking forward to having him, and I hope all of you will enjoy his ministry. One of the hallmarks of this year has been we've been praying on Mondays a prayer passage for each other. And instead of asking Rick to preach on the prayer passage that I'd like us to pray for each other on Mondays in November, I thought it best just to take a step back from our Exodus series and prepare us with uh, this prayer passage before Rick's arrival. So this is the prayer passage on Mondays that we'll be praying for each other in the month of November, 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. Let's pray, and then we will jump right into the text this morning. Father, give us grace to understand your mind. Help us as we seek to pray these words for each other and for ourselves. And I pray that we would see how much you care for us and that that would fuel our security and our prayers. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was between my ninth and 10th grade years, and I was asked to read a short novel by Ernest Hemingway called The Old Man and the Sea. Old Man and the Sea. The old man is quite a fisherman. He's one of the best fishermen. And he's tough. He's tough-minded. He's a amateur arm wrestling champion in addition to being an incredible fisher he latches on to a marlin the biggest marlin he's ever seen or heard about in his life which is a long one and considering he's a professional fisherman and has seen many of these it's something and he begins an epic battle having hooked this great fish but it soon becomes apparent that he's not just fighting the fish He's fighting two other enemies, stronger enemies. He's fighting time, and he's fighting the sea. Hence, old man and the sea. I won't ruin the ending of the book for you if you would like to go read it. But here, this old man wages a war against two superior foes, time and the sea. Peter was a fisherman. He was a fisherman by trade. He was a man who gave himself to commercial fishermen. And like every other commercial fisherman that has ever lived, he no doubt was a man with strong hands and a strong back and was a practical man. He was not a man who was trained in rabbinical schools. He was sent to Jewish people. And ironically, God sent a bookish man, a small, diminutive, almost blind man who was trained in those rabbinical schools to reach out to Gentiles. The non-Jewish trained Jewish man was sent to Jewish people, and the Jewish trained Jewish man was sent to Gentiles. That's how God works in his economy sometimes, isn't it? Well, Peter was a fisherman, and he was turned into a preacher, and this preacher failed. He failed a few times. He failed in that he betrayed the Lord, and the night the Lord was betrayed, but this fisherman had more lessons to learn. He was, a, as I said, a strong man, a practical man. He was a man who was brave and bold and 
just kind of did, the first thing that came to mind and his physical bearing and his attitude melded together such that the Lord Jesus gave him a nickname and his nickname was Rock. He wouldn't nickname a person Rock unless he had those sorts of qualities that would commend that nickname. And that was his name. That was his nickname that the Lord gave him. And Rock proved to be anything but on occasion. He betrayed the Lord. He was forgiven, of course. And later in his life, he was given an opportunity to stand with Gentiles. And instead, he grew afraid of men. And he ate with Jewish men instead of eating with the Gentiles. And it offended the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul stood up and confronted him publicly and said, you ought not be doing this, Peter. And Peter, to his everlasting credit, said, yes, Paul, you're right. And now Peter is an old man. He was a fisherman, and now he's an old man. and He's battled time, and he's, he's battled these internal forces that have proven to be extremely strong adversaries. And he's telling people how they can walk with the Lord. These are people who have been Christians and been persecuted. The emperor is now Nero. And Nero has sent these Christians scrambling all over the Roman Empire. And now a, a group of Christians have gone north and they've congregated in Asia Minor. We, we know that area now is Turkey. And they're up there trying to get away from Rome as fast as they can, and they're facing all sorts of temptations. And these Jewish Christians have become objects of Rome's disfavor, and they're on the run. And you can imagine what it would be to be so persecuted that you have to flee. And suddenly, instead of being able to tap into a support structure of friends and family and co-workers, these new Christians are forced to tackle this persecution in a completely new community. And some of them were tempted to go back to their Jewish family and their Jewish people and their Jewish theology because there was safety there. And Peter is encouraging them not to do that. The Lord will never let you down. And here, as he wraps up this first epistle to these Christians who have been scattered and these Christians who are now tempted to go backward, the rock, the strong man who's now an old man, tells them how they can walk with the Lord. It's a prayer and a command to pray all at once. It's both a prayer and a command to pray, and I hope... We'll see that, and I hope we'll be praying this prayer for ourselves in the month of August. Let's look at Peter's pattern here in this, these first few verses. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, and so forth. And I want you to notice there are three command couplets. Three command couplets. Let's look at them. Let's find them very quickly. He says, humble yourselves. That's the command. And the second couplet occurs in verse 7, casting. Casting your cares. Humble, 
having cast. It's a past tense participle. Humble, having cast. The second one are two commands, and they're back to back in verse 8. Be sober-minded and be watchful. And they're both just straight commands, but we'll see how they tie together in just a moment. That's the second pair of commands. They're meant to be taken together. One explains the other. And the third prayer command occurs in verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 10. He says, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing. Resist and knowing. Resist and knowing is our second command couplet. Now, each of these commands are given in the past tense. Now, what that's communicating is that this is to be an urgency. There's a prayer um, motivation. There's a, 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 a prayer disposition that we're to have. That's urgent. Prayer ought not be a sort of passing thing that's always the next thing to do on the list that we never get around to. Prayer is the thing we put in the middle of the day, at the beginning of the day, and it's the thing that we work everything else around. He's giving an urgency in this prayer. That's why he puts them in the past tense. This is an urgent prayer that he's giving. And each pair is a command and an explanation. The second explains the first, and it explains it by answering how. Okay, let's show you this. Humble yourselves, therefore. How, Peter, do I show that I'm humbling myself? What does it look like when a person humbles themselves? Well, a humble person casts all of his cares onto the Lord. Be sober. Okay, Peter, my eyes are open. I'm sober. I'm awake. I'm alert. What does that mean? Be sober. How? By being firm in your faith. But be sober by, let's see here, be sober-minded by being watchful. Okay? Be awake. Be sober. Be alert. Okay. What's that look like? Well, you're watchful. Be watchful. And then in our third one, he says, resist, resist the devil. How do I resist? I resist by knowing something, by deliberately recalling something to mind. When the devil comes to me with his temptations, when the devil comes to me with his discouragements and his anxieties, there's one thing in particular that I have to deliberately call to mind as an act of resistance to what my adversary would do to me. And that's to know. That's to remember that you're not alone. That other people have gone through this. In fact, many Christians the world over are suffering the exact same thing. Pray for them as they pray for you. You see the couplets now. These are the prayer couplets. The first is a command. The second sometimes is a command, sometimes it's a participle. Either way, it explains the command. Let's look at our first set. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, having cast. Humble yourselves. Look at verse 6 with me for a moment. Humble yourselves, therefore. Humble yourselves, therefore. We have a little saying that we like to use here at Fellowship Bible Church. Whenever you see a therefore, find out what it's therefore. So let's go back to verse 5 and see what it's therefore. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And here, Peter is quoting a passage from 1 Samuel. 
This is actually the theme verse of the books of Samuel and Kings. God opposes the proud kings who, like Saul, when, or when David grew high and mighty in his pride, or when Solomon grew high and mighty in his pride, God brings them down one after the other. God opposes the proud. God is actively opposed to the arrogant, to the self-consumed, to those who are self-serving, those who think they stand. God takes an active posture of disposition, of, a, of opposition toward them. Because God is actively opposed to proud people, but instead God turns his back on proud people, we're told that God knows the haughty, the proud. God knows them from afar. But God turns toward the humble. He graces them. He helps them. He gives them favor. And Peter's saying, because of that, because of this gracious attitude that God has toward the humble, because he regards the lowly, because he opposes the proud, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now this word, humble and under, Peter is deliberately using the ideas of under twice. The very word humble means to bring yourself under. Bring yourself under, under the hand of God, under the mighty hand of God. Now this would have been a particularly bitter pill for these people to swallow. For these were Christians who were on the run because of men like Nero. Nero, who lit his gardens with living people that he set ablaze. Nero was a tyrant, the worst of tyrants. Nero's not unique in history for his tyrannical abilities. There's been all sorts of terrible people like him. But Peter says, you're scattered right now, you're being tried right now, and I want you to know that even though Nero's on the throne, this is God's mighty hand, and this is God's work, and if you find yourself resisting even these sinful people, you just might find yourself resisting God. And Peter, no doubt, was hearkening back to a moment in his life. Do you remember what happened in the garden? The soldiers, the Roman soldiers, came to take the Lord Jesus Christ. They came clanking up with their clubs and their swords and so forth. And Judas steps forward to betray the Lord. And Jesus says to them, who, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And when they come forward to take the Lord, what does Peter do? He rashly takes out his sword and he lops off the ear of one of these men. He doesn't get a well done from the Lord. Put your sword away, Peter. And Jesus undoes what Peter just did and healed the man's ear back onto his head. Peter... Were these men righteous? Of course not. This was one of the greatest, this was the greatest human tragedy that's ever happened. These men were mindlessly agents of the state coming and taking an innocent man and none of them had the guts to stand up and defend an innocent man. Peter was fighting wicked men, but they were wicked men doing their job under the mighty ordination of God. God's mighty hand was using those wicked instruments. 
to bring about a lamb who would be led off innocently to slaughter. And Peter was ruining the picture. He was fighting against God's mighty hand. And Peter is now reminding these people that sometimes it's hard to humble ourselves under wicked instruments. But there's no authority that doesn't derive its presence from God. And so God, through Peter, is telling us to bring ourselves under God's mighty hand, even if those instruments are wicked. Humble yourselves underneath of them, not for their sake, but for God's doing. Now there's a way that we show our humility. Peter stipulates here, God will in the end raise you higher in time. That's where God will exalt you. This word exalt doesn't just mean he's going to lift you up. It means he's actually going to lift you higher and exalt you above these wicked instruments, these wicked men who would use their authority to hold you down. One day, they will look up at you just as Potiphar looked up at Joseph after Joseph had been elevated to the position of prime minister. Now, as I said, there's a couplet here. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, having cast or casting all your cares on him. This word in verse 7, casting your cares on him. I think in the past I've asked you to show me what you think casting looks like. Give me a verb of what you think casting looks like. And some of you take out your fishing rod and cast like this. And some of you pick up your imaginary ball and throw it like this. Well, that is neither of them. <laughs> this is a rare word. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. Let me describe it. It was, do you remember when Jesus was about to enter Jerusalem uh, on Palm Sunday? He was, this was, he was going to enter for the, uh, the, um, the, word, the, the triumphal entry. And the disciples had this donkey that had never been ridden, never been broken, and they took cloaks and they wanted to create a makeshift padding and saddle for the Lord Jesus. And so they laid blankets on the donkey. And that's the word. They cast. They, they rolled out. They rolled out. They laid upon a beast of burden, these garments. And so, you can imagine what this might look like. You've got this, this point of anxiety. You've got this worry. You've got this fear. And isn't this true of all fears? Fears entangle themselves in your heart and mind, don't they? There's one fear, but that one fear is rolled up into all sorts of other fears. And when you begin to explore that fear, you realize how many different parts of your life that fear can touch. In fact, we'll talk about this in just a moment. When somebody is truly anxious, when somebody is truly fearful, it's as though in our minds a great canyon gets created. The water comes down and it hits and it finds a path and it flows down the canyon into the river at the bottom. And before long, every event, every thought, every change, every 
unexpected event in life begins to get filtered through this great fear. And it works its way down, down to the bottom of the canyon. And the river grows and grows and grows. And it's the hardest thing in the world to stop it. It's the hardest thing in the world to not have those thoughts roll down that canyon into that river below. It's the hardest thing in the world to change the path that your thoughts take and instead of adding to the fear, pull back out of it. Peter says, take all of the things that that anxiety touches and roll it right out on the Lord and walk away from it. You see, that's the hardest part for me. I will roll it out on the Lord. And then when I'm done, you know what I do? I roll it back up and throw it in my backpack. (laughs) I'm like, all right, Lord, thank you. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. Leave it. Leave that right there. And so what Peter's saying is humility. It's not presumption. We're not saying, Peter's most certainly not saying that you don't deserve this anxiety. See, sometimes we're like, well, this is an anxiety that I made. This is a care that I created. This is my own fault. Therefore, I should have to bear it. No, no. Peter says, casting all your anxieties on him, whether you created them, whether you deserve them. You say, well, I should be able to bear up under this. That's not what Peter says. He doesn't say, cast all the anxieties on him that you can't bear by yourself. He says, take them all and roll them out on the Lord and let him bear them away. And be humble enough to walk away and let the Lord deal with it. And why? Why do you know that you can do that? Because, Peter says, he cares for you. Now, this is a special construction. It doesn't just mean that he cares about you. We can say that to people sometimes. I I, I care about you. But it's one thing to say to a friend or to a person in the community. It's another thing to have a, a daughter and something is threatening her. And as a dad, the anger and the rage rise up inside of you to protect your daughter. Why? She's your daughter. And she is of particular concern to you. And that's the word. That's the word that Peter is using of the Lord. You can roll out all your concerns. You can take all that anxiety. You can put it all on the Lord and walk away because you are an object of particular concern for him. You are, as the Old Testament says, the apple of his eye. He cares about you. He cares for you. His eye is on you. He will counsel you with his eye on you. It matters to him because it matters to you. He cares about you. You are, a, you are an object of his particular concern and focus. Yes, God knows all and sees all. 
but God can focus on one thing as though it's the only thing. And he cares about you. He cares for you. Number two, be sober, keep watch. These are two verbs. They're back to back. Sober is the opposite of drunk or distracted. It means to have a clear mind. We might say to a person, focus, or to a person, stay in the moment. This is a person who's busy about things. He has an important thing. And it's very important that he block out everything else and focus on this particular thing right now. Narrow your focus. Block out everything else and get the job done. Maybe you've heard this before. Or maybe you've got to do something like, um, this happens sometimes when I've got my trailer loaded up with stuff and the back of my truck is filled with filled with items and I, I have to back the trailer into sort of a, a narrow place. And, and, and what happens when I start doing this? The kids start asking me questions. <laughs> and the, the kids start getting worried. And, and I'm worried too. And, and what do I say? I, I just, I very gently, only ever calmly, never with any stress in my voice. Isn't that right, children? <laughs> what? Okay. I say, children, please stop talking. Daddy needs to concentrate. That's our idea. That's our word. Focus. How do we do that? How do we focus? How do we sober up? Well, we do so by keeping watch. This is a military term. It's the guard who's on the watch. Again, we might say, keep your eyes peeled. Keep your eyes peeled for what? Stay awake for what? Stay focused for what? You have an enemy. You have an enemy, and he is more vicious and brutal and awful than you can possibly fathom. It's hard for Christian people to think that there is a force out there that really is this bad. And he is. The devil hates the Lord Jesus Christ with an abiding passion. He hates him with a hatred that you can't possibly imagine. And because you belong to him, simply because you bear his image, he hates you. And he will have you. And in fact, it says that he is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the word literally means to swallow somebody alive. This word is used frequently in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it refers to Pharaoh's armies being swallowed alive by the Red Sea. It refers to the sons of Korah being swallowed alive by the ground. The leaders of Hamas who beheaded babies. The Japanese soldiers prior to World War II who would cut open women's wombs, kill their babies in front of them, and then kill the woman. That's the devil. trained men and women in white scrubs who murder children in their mother's wombs. German doctors who lined Jews up and escorted them into a gas chamber, telling them that they were going to be cleansed when in fact their viewpoint was that they were cleansing the German Reich from these people. That sort of evil prowls that sort of evil works, and it wants you, and it will have you if you will let it. The devil doesn't want to just swallow you alive. He wants you to destroy your life in some irrevocable way, and then he will turn and mock you and shame you and guilt you in the wake of it, even though he told you it would be great. 
then he will kill you if he can. And he really is that evil, and he really will do that. And it requires every ounce of sobriety and watchfulness and care that we can pay. Be sober, be vigilant, be watchful, keep your eyes peeled, stay awake. Your adversary is a roaring lion. Peter is alluding with these words, walking and seeking. You remember in the book of Genesis, chapter 4, God comes to Cain and he says, do, do you do well to be angry? Sin is crouching at the door and it will have you. Do you remember what Cain did next? He jumped his brother and killed him. Do you remember in Job? God said, okay, Satan, you can have everything of Job but his life. And do you remember the terrible awfulness that the devil poured out upon that man, that poor man, that innocent man? The devil will sift you. He will have you. He is an enemy that we must take great care and watchfulness over. He says, however, in our third couplet, resist him. Resist him. This word resist means to stand against. Now this is, this is important. Peter is doing something for students of the Bible. Early in the church's history, they weren't sure what to do with the Old Testament law. It was tricky. In fact, even today, scholars are very confused about what to do with the law, and it's a bit of a fad right now in scholarly circles to explore the intricacies of the law and how we might use that in the New Testament. Well, first century Christians were no different, and they struggled with that. And the question came up, how much of the law should a person adopt if he wants to become a Christian? Does he have to become a Jew to become a Christian? And all the church leaders got together in Acts 15 and they decided none. <laughs> none. A Gentile doesn't have to take any of the law. Well, do you think that settled things for everybody? Do you think everybody, all false teachers especially, were like, oh, well, of course. Since the church leaders have said this, I must be wrong and they must be right. Well, of course not. That's not what they did. And they started raising a ruckus. They started allowing their false theology to smolder and they found more sophisticated ways of saying it and they could make life very hard on people like Peter. And Peter found himself at a luncheon. And there were these Jewish people over here who said you had to adopt some of the law to be a Christian and there were some Gentile people over here that Peter had eaten with the day before. And when Peter saw these Jews, he grew afraid of them. And he sat to eat with them. And the Apostle Paul went to red. <laughs> and the Apostle stood up and resisted him to his face publicly. Peter is using that word here. And that's the word in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Resist the devil. Take a stand against him. Plant your feet on the ground and push back. 
And if it requires some sort of public proclamation to do it, do it. This word firm, stand firm. We get the word steroid from this word. It means to strengthen, and it describes anything that's hard. It can be a flint rock. It can be the base of a mountain, and it can be a foundation. Stand firm. Stand rock hard. Stand firm publicly against and privately against this adversary. And how is it? How is it? that you will find the resources to fight and stand firm against this adversary? How is it that you'll be able to take this public proclamation against the devil? Well, you're going to have to know something. In fact, you're going to have to remember something. The battle is going to take place in your mind. And he says this, knowing, remembering, remembering that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Isn't that the great lie the devil tells us? You're alone. You're the only one who's ever done this. You're the only one who struggles with these fears. Nobody else would understand. There's nobody like you at that church. Peter says all of those are satanic um, lies to isolate you so that he can devour you. And when we stand firm against the devil and his lies, we have to remember that no temptation has taken us, but such as is common to man. We have to reach out for the help of other Christians. We have to humble ourselves under other believers. Clothe yourselves with humility, all of you, and accept the ministering grace that other Christians have. And remember that we stand with other believers and we pray for them and we ask them to pray for us and we fight, we resist, we stand firm as community. We stand firm together in solidarity. And this knowledge leads us to join together knowing that we're not alone. And you are not alone. I think, I think, I, I can't say every time, I can't say every time, but I would say the vast majority of the time, I, I, I don't know if it's every time, I didn't do a scientific study of this, but whenever I talk with somebody who is being plagued with anxiety, depression, so on and so forth, in almost every case they worry that they're the only ones in our church who struggles with this. And I can tell you definitively that that's just not true. Christians the world over have anxieties that we have to roll out onto the Lord. And I think it's fair to say every person in here has felt despair and anxiety and has had to learn to humble themselves and roll their concerns and cares out on the Lord. It's common. That doesn't, that doesn't solve your fear. That doesn't take your fear away. I know that. But you're no more isolated now, are you? There's help. There's grace. There's mercy available. Peter closes with an assurance. He says, the God of all grace, 
he assures us that this trial that we're going through, the trial that these Turkish, these Jews living in Turkey were going through, not that Turkey existed at the time, but you know what I mean, it's sort of that area on the map, and he says that by the God of this grace, this trial is temporary, it'll only last a little bit of time, and this this trial, this trial will look smaller in the light of eternal grace. This trial is momentary compared with the eternal reward that awaits. So set your minds, set your hearts on the God of all grace who's going to pour out his blessings on you and think of the wonderful reward that awaits you. And suddenly all this stuff will look small and earthly when God wants you to set his mind, set your minds on what's to come. Peter assures us that God is nobody's debtor. God isn't going to owe anybody. And if he is bringing you through this trial, if it's his mighty hand that's causing this temporary pain, he will heal it. He will heal all wounds. He will mend it. He will strengthen all pains and he will confirm all doubts. And one day, one day, you will stand in the light of his eternal grace and you will confess with your mouth that the Lord did all things well and that he has restored and healed and made you whole. One of the hardest parts about a surgery is the recovery. Sometimes it just takes forever, doesn't it? And people will ask you, are you better? Well, I'm better. But let's not confuse better with good. <laughs> I'm sure you've all been in that position before. One day, you're going to look back on your life and you're going to say, I'm whole now. And it is all better not just my physical bearing, but all my relationships, all those hurts, all those pains, it will be healed thoroughly and utterly. And Peter wants you to put your minds on that as you cast all your cares on the Lord. And Peter, of course, finishes with this great doxology, the glory of God. The same God who wants glory from this trial will be glorified forever. And he's going to use this trial to be glorified through you. He wants you to glorify the Lord. He wants you to see more of the Lord as you go through this. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to swallow alive. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Can we pray this for each other? Can we pray this for each other on Mondays, the month of November? Father, would you give us grace? You're the God of all grace. Strengthen us, empower us, not just to cast our anxieties on you, but to pray for those of us who are battling 
anxieties, real and imagined. There are some of us who have great events about in our life and it stirs fear. And some of us who are tilting against imaginary windmills. Either way, they feel very real and they can disquiet the soul either way. I pray for all of us who harbor these fears. May we cast them on you. Lord, may we all be watchful and be vigilant, not giving the devil any opportunity for he would have us. But by your grace, you keep us from him. You still demand that we resist him. May we do so remembering that believers the world over are doing the same as we. May we pray for them and ask them to pray for us. To you, O King, we give the glory, both now and forevermore. And all God's people say, Amen.